Welcome, everyone, to episode 28 of Some Like It's Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. And more importantly, welcome to year two of the podcast. Some things will be different this year. We're talking about one of those things today. We have plenty more changes to come in the next month or two, which we'll be talking about on a later episode that I think a lot of people are going to appreciate, a lot of people are really going to be into. Um, but, but for now, those are the changes uh, that we're thinking about. There, we'll, Again, we'll talk about one of them today, a few more to come later. But some things, of course, will remain the same. And one of those things is that I'm your host, Scott Shelton. And with me, as always today, to kick off 2019 with our first you know, mainline official episode, uh, that's Scott Harvey. Scott, you know, I, I, I was thinking about asking you several different questions. One of them, of course, is how is your 2019 treating you so far? But I think maybe more interesting for our listeners might be, do you have any sort of 2019 uh, New Year's resolutions around how you're going to be you know, consuming media this year? Would that be you know, TV, movies, uh, streaming services, anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I think you're, for one, you're right that that is more interesting to our listeners than how, how I've actually been doing. No one cares about my welfare. They just want to know my thoughts on, uh, on movies and, 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 uh, what we're here to talk about. But I think as far as my like resolution goes for, for 2019, I'm, I want to like mention something that we don't typically talk about on here, but I mean, I guess you, you would qualify it sort of in the, in the same realm of what we talk about. You know, we, usually we talk about movies and, and, you know, sometimes TV. And even today, I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about music when we get to our, what we've been watching, but um, we, we, we don't focus on books at all. And I'm really uh, one of my resolutions. And I feel like this is a lot of people's resolutions and no, you'll never actually follow through with it. Kind of like, you know, going to the gym, you know, maybe for two weeks, you can actually keep up with it, but then everyone, you know, life gets in the way. But uh, I think I, I definitely want to try to read more books this year because, you know, I, I was a huge reader as like a kid and, and as a teenager, and I've gotten away from it in recent years, you know, just because it, certainly, yes, like I said, life gets in the way, I'm busy, but that's not to say that I don't have the time to read like I do. I just choose to spend that time doing other things, but hopefully I want to replace those things this year at least to some extent with, with reading more books, because I, I have been reading some while I've been home for Christmas and, and enjoying it. So that's really, I, I guess what I, what I aim to do in 2019, whether I actually will do it is another question. Ah, uh, yes. Always the important question of whether you actually will be able to accomplish that goal. I, I'm of course. in a similar way to use kind of, you know, yours is reading more books. Mine is kind of more focused around. I mean, one that I mentioned to you, which I don't think I want to say is my official 2019 resolution is to just listen to more of Collider's, you know, wider family of, of podcasts and, and, you know, content, right? I mean, you, all of our listeners will know that we are big fans of the movie Trivia Schmodown, which, you know, granted is moving away from the Collider network, but I'm also a big fan of Collider's content and, and a lot of it, there's so much of it and there's so much, so many other uh, things that I'm interested in consuming in the media realm in terms of podcasts that it's, it's difficult for me to really keep up as much as I'd like to, but I want to do try to make a concerted effort to do that next year. And, and also, I guess to kind of maybe as a, as an add on to what you were saying about your goal is to read more books. 
Michael, honestly, and this sounds maybe sounds weird for our listeners because they probably have the perception that I consume so much already. That I really just want to consume more, um, you know, TV, movies, etc. This year, I I feel good about the number of never movies. satisfied. Yeah, never satisfied. Exactly. I, I feel good about the number of movies that I saw last year, but I really didn't keep up at all with you know some of the high quality streaming services, whether they, you know, the original movies or uh, original miniseries, you know, Scott, you know, that I'm not the biggest t- like ongoing, you know, broadcast television TV fan anymore. I think that it's, there's just so much there one. Um, and that it's hard to distill that down to, okay, what's the best also 20 something episodes per season is a ton, but I'm a really big fan of not only just Netflix like model, but the idea that they really do invest in, I think having higher quality, shorter run shows. And I understand why broadcast networks can't do that. Like they're, they need to have a full year of content uh, on their channels, you know, five nights a week, essentially. And that's really difficult uh, if you don't have the full, you know, 20, 25 episode seasons uh, that, that were accustomed to, you know, maybe a decade ago, a decade and a half ago uh, with, you know, the great shows like 24 uh, house, et cetera. Like, you, you know, you can bet on them being, you know, well, 24, obviously it's going to be 24, but you know, 20 to 25 episodes per season. And one thing that I like about Netflix is that you're often getting 10, you know, at most 15 episodes per season. And obviously you get them all at one time, so you can watch them at your leisure. And I think that, you know, you know, even as, and we'll talk about, about this one maybe later today, but you know, you even have Carmen, like the new Carmen San Diego show on Netflix is coming out, I think, you know, in a week and a half or a week from now. And I'm really excited about that. And I, and I'm hoping that watching that show will be a catalyst for me you know, going, getting back into, uh, at least at the, you know, at the very least the mini series that I, I found so, um, gripping a lot of the times, uh, but I've just fallen off the wagon a little bit recently. So I want to watch more of that. Um, uh, and I, and I also want to play more video games. There've been a lot of great video games that have come out this year that I did have the chance to play, uh, not least, you know, kind of the two big ones for me were God of War and Marvel Spider-Man, but there are a, a bunch of great games that come out every year. And you know, I just want to try to kind of carve out the time, you know, eat, I'm not talking about playing the hundred hour games, right? You cover it at the time for the, you know, the compelling single player story games uh, to, to play those. But you know, that's a, that's asking a lot. Probably it's a lot of time commitment and you know, I don't always necessarily have that time, especially with my job. You mentioned the video games. That would be one of mine, except my Xbox just broke. My, I, I was still going off of 360. I mean, it was, it was long overdue for it to break, but uh, I'm currently uh, completely without a, a game system. So uh I'm not going to set that as my resolution for the year, um, even though, you know, there there are in a given year, there are three or four, you know, games, which which I would like to play. But, you know, don't, don't have the resources at this exact moment in time to uh, to procure a new system. So I guess I'll just stick to the books and maybe, you know, with with not playing video games, not even, you know, being able to play FIFA anymore. Uh, I, that will, you know, spur me on to to read some more like I want to. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, yeah, when you don't when you when you don't have a choice, what are you going to do about it? Uh, but that'll be good probably for that resolution. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, Definitely. I would say, you know, if you're talking about last generation consoles, Xbox 360, totally where to be. But for single player experiences in the new generation of consoles, you know, hopefully your next console can be maybe a, uh, even if it's still a little ways off in the future, maybe you can get a PS4 and play a lot of the, you know, absolutely fantastic single player experiences from this past generation. Yeah, I mean, I would love that personally, but it's probably far in the future at this at this stage. Fair enough. Well, not so far in our future. We'll, we have two movies that we're going to be talking about today on the podcast. Scott, I alluded to some things earlier that will be different in year two. And the biggest change that our listeners may have already noticed is, is that you sound a lot different. You know, of course, we're not, 
we recorded in person over the holidays. And so listeners got a, a taste of a few episodes where we were in the same room. But you know, this time this year, we're not we're no longer in the same place yet. You still sound a lot better. And that's because uh, we're using some new software through Zencaster to make you sound much clearer for our, for our audio listeners. Are, are you excited about coming through crystal clear into the ears of our listeners? Oh, yeah. You know, I'm sure that this this is what what's really been holding people back from listening is the fact that I sounded very garbled. But uh, but, you know, now my my crystal clear, my, my dulcet tones will uh, will, you know, entice them into listening to more more episodes so yeah of course uh you know there 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 was that discrepancy between our, our voices so uh definitely glad to to have that out of the way and i think zencaster seems to be a great software from uh you know what i've seen in the infant stages of us using it here so yeah looking forward to it awesome well we'll be hoping to fully leverage that newfound clarity today as we'll be going uh, we'll be over-indexing on biographical dramas, I think it's fair to say, when we review two more, uh, admittedly December releases, that will be up for awards consideration over the next few months. A little bit later, we'll be discussing the Sharshi Ronan, Margot Robbie headlined period drama, Mary Queen of Scots. But first, we're taking a deep dive on writer-director Adam McKay's follow-up to 2015's The Big Short with another biographical comedy drama, Vice. Vice sees Christian Bale and Steve Carell reunite with McKay to chronicle the rise to power of Dick Cheney as George W. Bush's secretive vice president in a feat of incredible physique transformation. And, and I mean that in the sincerest way. It's, it's truly incredible to see it. Bale stars as the power hungry Dick Cheney with Sam Rockwell as the president, George W. Bush, Amy Adams as Cheney's wife, Lynn Cheney, Carell as secretary of defense, Donald Rumsfeld, along with a number of other stars that fill out the remainder of the cast. Scott, I'll leave it there. Did you find Vice as gripping as its name might suggest and its awards hype should certainly imply? Or did you find that it was simply a hair and makeup job, as you sometimes like to call it? <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so I sent out a tweet yesterday from our show account of some you know, some feedback that I have gotten from people who have seen this movie. Um, and you know, these people who sent me this feedback, you know, many of them come from very different political backgrounds. Um, and, you know, that was one thing I wondered going into this movie is how much will your politics affect, um, you know, your what you see in this movie, how, you know, how well you respond to what Adam McKay is trying to do here. And I think that the answer that I've seen from, you know, from just from getting feedback from people and granted, you know, it's a it's a relatively small sample size. With that being said, it's it's, you know, it's it's a sizable enough uh, amount of people have reached out to me to where I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually kind of surprising. Uh, what we see is that it doesn't really matter what your political background is. The the views have been pretty uh, pretty consistent on this, and so in that way, I think Vice has done sort of a remarkable thing of uniting uh, Democrats and Republicans behind one single opinion, uh, and that opinion is, of course, that this movie sucks. Um, this movie is, you know, we've talked about some bad movies on this podcast, um, and but not no movie that we've talked about so far has made me angry in the same way, or has even really made me angry at all. I mean, there are some bad movies where, like, you know, Jurassic World, I always bring up this example, but, you know, when I think about Jurassic World, I'm like, it can't help it that it's a bad movie. It's Jurassic World. Well, I mean, what are they going to do? It, it's going to suck no matter what. But this movie actually makes me angry. And the reason it makes me so angry is because of the genuine contempt which Adam McKay seems to have for his audience which, first of all, is clear through the storytelling of this movie. And the, like, unbelievable, I mean, you know, you talk about how much you hate voiceover, and I mean, 
I can't imagine what your feelings were in this movie. The unbelievable amount of over-explanation that happens to the point where there's an entire back narrative for the person who was doing the voiceover, which is this character played by Jesse Plemons, who we don't even find out who he is really until about the last 15 minutes of the movie. Sort of almost hot summer night style, uh, hiding the ball. But um, so not only you know does the narrative really pander to the audience, but the mid-credits scene of this movie is one of the most horribly misguided scenes that I've seen in a movie in the whole time. And so, you know, lest you be confused from watching the movie about how Adam McKay feels about his audience, he makes it crystal clear in this mid-credits scene that... Wait, wait, there's a, there's a mid-credits scene? I did not stay for it. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, then, this is good. I have to explain it then, because... So what happens is, you know, we see throughout the movie these focus groups which are talking about the the Iraq war and, you know, people's feelings on the Iraq war. And, you know, we kind of see both sides of the political spectrum represented in these focus groups. What happens at the end of the movie in this mid mid credit scene is that we return to these focus groups, but instead of talking about the Iraq war, what they're talking about is uh, the movie itself. So they break, they completely break the fourth wall and they're literally reviewing vice itself. And, you know, there's sort of some back and forth going on between, you know, someone who's, a very liberal member of the group and someone, you know, who's a conservative member of the group. Um, and this character who's in the focus group, who is, I guess, you know, clearly presented to be the token millennial breaks in and just says, uh, you know, this movie, I, I can't remember. They say something about, you know, the movie being, being good or bad, but what they say, I think they say this movie was boring uh, and they they finish it out by saying, "I can't wait for the new Fast and Furious movie. It's going to be lit." Um, so so yeah. So like I was saying, um, this movie, like the mid credit scene, really cements what I think is is pretty clear from throughout this movie, which is that Adam McKay has a lot of contempt for his audience. Um, you know, the fact that he he considers you know he, he's pigeonholing millennials into. He, well, first of all, he's taking a shot at the Fast and the Furious movies, obviously, and and I do want to note that the last four Fast and Furious movies, you know, had a higher Rotten Tomatoes score than this movie does. So maybe he should uh, he should pick his shots a little bit better, pick his battles a little bit better. But you know, it I don't even need to explain to you why this is very problematic in terms of the way that it stereotypes millennials, and you know, it it just draws very intellectually lazy conclusions, which is kind of what the whole movie does. But you know, so so. You know, that's the reason why this movie, you know, sort of makes me angry, but it's certainly not the only reason why I don't like this movie. I mean, this movie, I, I'll be honest with you, like, I don't think it's exaggeration to say that this movie is almost propaganda in the sense that we uh, never see any, you know, side of Dick Cheney. The, the movie never gives any actual thought to the idea that there's anything behind Dick Cheney other than the fact that he's evil, that he's, you know, a monster, that he we wish he had died when he had, uh, you know, this heart transplant. And, you know, perhaps most bizarrely, the most bizarre take uh, to have in 2019 that this movie seems to take on is that Dick Cheney is worse than ISIS, um, which, yeah, that's an actual point which the movie tries to make. Um, and, you know. Well, it certainly tries to make the point that he is the reason ISIS exists. Yes, but the the whole comparing the death toll from the Iraq War to uh, yeah. of of ISIS, you know, seems to be a direct like. Well, look at this: Dick Cheney's decisions killed more people than ISIS. Um, which, like I said, I think very interesting take to have in two thousand and nineteen. But 
I, I also think that this movie is told in an extremely annoying way, not just the voiceover narration, but some of the you know brief little narrative techniques that Adam McKay utilizes in this movie, which kind of make it clear to me that he's not interested in making a movie about Dick Cheney as much as he is making a movie about Adam McKay. Um, and you know, some examples include where literally they break into Shakespearean dialogue at one point for no real. That was so strange. I literally to this. Yeah. I mean, I've thought a lot about this movie already and I do not understand why they, why they did that. Yeah. That, that's the thing. Like it's okay to add your own narrative flair to it. I mean, certainly, you know, some of my favorite director, we don't, we don't go into these movies expecting to see the same cut and dried biopic. We'd be bored if they were, but you're, you're, you know, what you do with the narrative needs to add something of substance to it. And it didn't add substance to it. I mean, this particular part, another example is, you know, we literally have an in credits sequence halfway through the movie where, you know, the movie does the little historical, like Dick Cheney lived happily ever after. And it's, it's basically just, you know, this sardonic insult of, of Dick Cheney and the fact that instead of, you know, spending time with his family and, and withdrawing to be with his family, you know, specifically his daughter, Mary, who has come out as gay. Um, he, you know, decided to pursue a political career anyway. And it's, you know, sort of making fun of, well, you know, here's the life that he should have chosen. Uh, and here's, we wish the movie could have ended this way, but actually it ends, you know, with a, a completely different way. And again, that, that's about the only time in the movie that I actually laugh. I will give it credit. Like that is the one moment in the movie during that sequence that I laughed and I'll talk more about this later probably, but the humor, the rest of the humor in this movie just didn't land for me. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, maybe I cracked a smile, but like, I don't think it added, again, I don't think it added anything whatsoever other than it's just kind of another cheap dig. And I, you know, like I said, this movie, this whole movie is just a design. I mean, it's character assassination, which, okay, fine. Like if you want to, if that's the angle you want to take, fine, but it's not even well-made propaganda. Like this isn't even, I mean, this isn't the triumph of the will for Pete's sake. I mean, this movie from the very first shot, the very first thing we see about Dick Cheney is he was busted for, for DUI. It, we see him getting busted for DUI, like at the very beginning of the movie. And, you know, that really just sets the tone for the whole movie that we're not going to explore his motivations. We're not going to explore any sort of, you know, rationale behind why he may have made these decisions that, yes, did have some disastrous consequences. We're really just here to, uh, you know, feed the fire and, you know, sort of stoke the liberal anger towards, you know, the entire Bush administration and what went on in this period in the early to mid 2000s. And it's really, the whole thing is just really horribly misguided. And it's, it's shocking to me that this many talented actors, um, you know, decided to be in this, in this project. And it's really a shame that they did because uh, this movie stinks. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to follow up on one of your points, and I was kind of going to save this for later, but since I think it's relevant right now, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Like one of the, I think like the key point about this movie that I wrote down afterwards was, you know, what your politics are aside, this movie tries everything in its power to get you to hate Dick Cheney. And, you know, maybe it's true that you should, right? Like politics aside, you know, as a person, maybe he's not that, maybe he's not that good of a person and you shouldn't like him, you know, especially if you then you know, layer on some of the things that McKay is saying, if, if you accept that they're true, maybe you should hate him. But it's so consumed with trying to make you hate Dick Cheney that it barely prevents, pre- presents a coherent story that dives, you know, deeper than the single dimension uh, that, that McKay has kind of constructed for Cheney. And of course, that's, and, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this later, but then that's you know, the idea of him trying to, you know, consolidate power, essentially. 
And I think that it's, it's so scattershot. It tries to use every single thing that they could possibly come up with for you to dislike Dick Cheney, that it doesn't do, it barely does any of them any justice uh, and, and barely fleshes any of those things out. And, you know, to your point about, he, you mentioned his, his daughter, Mary already, who came out as, as gay. Like I, again, maybe I'm just going ahead and jumping into this. So we're kind of skipping around here, but that the one nice moment in the film where you have Dick Cheney accept his daughter for who he is kind of you know, halfway through the movie, it, it comes out that she's, she's gay. And he says, you know what? doesn't matter. We love you anyway. That's like the one nice thing that this movie says about Dick Cheney. And by the end of it, it like takes that down completely. Yeah, completely so it's like literally the one nice thing that it says, you know, it's undone by the end of it. It's it, 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 honestly, it's, it's, I've never seen a movie go like this, this mainstream of a movie go so hard in on, on someone, especially in like an American political figure. Yeah. I mean, I think to your point, like, what we don't what we get is not a coherent narrative what we get is like adam mckay picking and choosing the worst parts of dick cheney's like legacy i guess you know obviously some of this is is still debated you know how much of a role what role did, did he have in this but picking what adam mckay deems to be the the worst parts of dick cheney's legacy and you know making that the movie not making you know the idea that oh we're going to tell a full you know body f- full picture of this man uh, you know, and who he was and, you know, what led him to pursue power. I mean, they must use the word power 500 times in this movie. Like if it wasn't clear to you, the first 499, um, you know, but, but we don't get any of that. Again, we get sort of not his greatest hits, but we get Dick Cheney's worst hits. Um, and because Adam McKay just really isn't interested in telling the story of Dick Cheney. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, to me, kind of what I was thinking is that this movie so badly wants to be a documentary, but, you know, for a variety of reasons, one, I think probably because Adam McKay had such success with the big short, right? And which is an exactly, you know, very, or I should say very similar kind of movie. Of course, it's, it's about an event rather than a person, but it ultimately is a very similar kind of movie that I think kind of the idea that he can like really crush these biogra- like these biographical comedy dramas probably went to his head, to be really frank. Uh, yeah. And it really led him to kind of lean in harder into preachy elements uh, around Dick Cheney. And the fact that he couldn't make a documentary uh, out of this with like you know, a, a fair side of documentary, it it really allows him to, you know, pick and choose. I mean, documentaries can do this too, right? But it, it can allow him to pick and choose what he wants. And then I think the most frustrating thing about this movie, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, is that he, he even admits, right, like that, you know, we can't really get like, Oh, I can't really get into why or why not Dick Cheney did these things because no one actually knows. Like there's this one scene between him and his and, and Lynn between Dick and Lynn it, kind of after George W. Bush offers him the vice presidency for the first time where he's like, no one really knows what they said in that interaction. And, and so, you know, Shakespearean thing happens. Yeah. And that's when the Shakespearean thing happens. And then the opening of the movie says, you know, a lot of this is it, it, no one really knows for sure, but we, you know, we did our best. Right. Is that, well, it says it a little bit differently than that, but it's ultimately what it's saying. And to me, it's someone who knows exactly the kind of film that they're making and they know that it's not the way they should be making it, but they're doing it anyway. And it really, the, honestly, this is a movie where I came out being pretty lukewarm on it. And the more I think about it, the more I kind of like write down my thoughts on it. I get, I get more negative on it. Yeah. And just sort of as a, as a last point, uh, what we talk about here is at a high level. I mean, 
you know, you say he wanted to make a documentary, but I think what we see from this movie is obviously, you know, he's very set in his opinion about Dick Cheney, but he doesn't seem to have a lot of confidence in, you know, the facts and the evidence to, you know, make a straight up docudrama. And, that, and that's why we have all of these other elements. That's why we have this whole thing with Jesse Plemons, who has to explain all these different events and why we should hate Dick Cheney because of this event. And, you know, here's exactly what Dick Cheney was doing this whole time. Like I said this to my brother as we got in the car, I'm like, you know, it really, whether you're, you know, confident in your story or not, like it really shows a lack of confidence in what you have to work with when you're telling the whole movie and explaining everything through the eyes of this person who I guess was a real person, but we don't really know who they are, you know, other than, you know, superficially what, how, how he serves the plot in the end, but we don't know how much he actually knew about Dick Cheney. It's really just sort of an Adam McKay stand in saying, here's what you need to believe about, you know, Dick Cheney. It's probably not clear from, you know, the story that I'm trying to tell, even though it should be, you know, if you're, if you're going to make the movie, but you know, here we go. I'm going to explain it for you. Number one, because I'm not confident in the story. Number two, because you're just a bunch of dumb millennials who need everything explained to them. No, I totally agree. I think if that, I mean, it may not have been clear from my point, but I think that's exactly why this movie isn't a documentary because he doesn't have the ground to stand on for it, right? And that's why he needs to create all these different mediums for, you know, explaining why he doesn't have the, the facts straight or why he's not super, not maybe not super confident in the actual content of what's behind the the scenes themselves and and you know you mentioned this at the beginning and said that i you don't know you can't imagine what i was going through watching this movie with all, with all the voiceover and i can tell you scott i didn't like any of it i didn't like any of the voiceover um i thought 90 to 95 percent of it was completely useless there were a couple moments where i thought it was useful but with a little bit different scene crafting it would have been it would have been unnecessary it's so useless in fact that at some points the voiceover Cuts in like there's one one part I'm remembering specifically where they're in the White House and we see Roger Ailes walking past Dick Cheney and the Jesse Plemons comes in and goes, oh, that's Roger Ailes. You know, he would go on to found Fox News, the first ever conservative only news network. And then like right after the voiceover breaks, um, Steve Carell comes in and he makes a comment like, oh, there's Roger. He's going off about his, you know, conservative only news network again, like basically restates exactly what was just said in the voiceover. And I'm like, why do you need this? Just tell the story. Yeah. I mean, I t- totally agree. Like, I-, I mean, listeners will know that I'm, I fall out somewhere on the conservative end of my choice of using voiceover uh, and not someone who, who likes very much of it, if at all. And this movie is no exception to that. So I, I was pretty frustrated throughout it. And honestly, at this point, like voiceover to me is so distracting from the movie where I literally start thinking about how, pointless it was to have like in the mo- in the moment how pointless it was to have that voiceover yeah absolutely. and it's so frustrating because it's super distracting yeah well there it is i guess um well you know we have really taken a dump on this movie so far <laughs> and i do want to say that there are some actual extraordinary parts of this movie and in my brief letterboxd re- no th- there are scott come on like on my brief letterboxd review i said that nothing about this movie is average there are elements of this movie that absolutely deserve the awards hype that it's getting and there are elements of this movie that, you know, the opposite, right? Uh, and, and a lot of those things that I think deserve 
huge, huge criticism, which we've already brought up, is is largely around Adam McKay, just to be perfectly honest. I mean, he wrote and directed this. There's really nowhere else to look, I think, besides him for most of the things that I have I find wrong with this movie. And the redeeming qualities of this movie is some of the acting, because, you know, in spite of what you think of the characters and the portrayal of the characters, I think particularly what Christian Bale and Amy Adams do in their performances is spectacular. It's some of the best acting performances of the year so far, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, I think they give good performances. I mean, you know, you expect to see that from these actors at this point. They're such strong actors. You know, that's what I talk about. It's such a waste of talent to have them in this movie and to have them playing characters where, I mean, we get a little bit about Lynn Cheney, but I wanted to know more because there are some interesting scenes, you know, like early on, we get a scene where she really goes in on Dick for his alcohol, alcoholism. And later on, we get what was actually kind of really interesting where she's campaigning for him while he's in the hospital for to be a, a senator or representative from uh yeah rep- from representative from wyoming from wyoming right um which i thought was interesting you know i wanted to know more about her background you know what it was that drove her to politics other than the thirst for power but we don't really get a whole lot you know we get a little bit briefly about her family background and you know she sort of had this abusive father or stepfather i'm not sure which when he was, but it's such a know. throwaway part of the movie. And it's so frustrating. It really that's, that's the first part where you get like, Oh, someone actually has a motivation. That's not, you yeah. Know, well, I mean, I guess you could say the motivation for Dick this entire time is not for his wife to leave him. I mean, I guess that's like, if you're taking the movie at face value, yeah. that was the motivation for his entire life post 1963. And, you know, again, so, the most surface level, like 30 seconds of content around these things, right? It's not explored whatsoever. And then Lynn's motivation is exactly to your point. Like she has an abusive father and she never wants to be in a situation like that. Uh, yeah. I mean, father, stepfather, I think it's father, but I'm not hundred percent sure to be honest. Um, and she doesn't want to be in that situation again. But like, these are all things that are brought up so briefly and never explored in the future. It's like Adam McKay is like, you know, there's probably some motivation there, but we're not oh, going to explore it. Or <laughs> even worse, if he literally doesn't recognize that there's any motivation there, like he doesn't even, realize that he's giving a little bit of motivation i'm i'm curious which it is but either way it's it it reflects poorly on him again yeah i mean it's it's him like you know seriously avoiding any possible way that we would empathize with these characters um you know by not exploring this any further at at least that's my opinion but yeah i think that you know the these are strong performances for for what they're given, it's hard for me to just associate anything positive with this movie because obviously I, I very, very strongly disliked it. Um, but, you know, if you have to take something positive away, it is the performances. I don't think that that absolutely I absolutely don't think that that means you should see the movie whatsoever. And, and you know, I will probably even be a little bit frustrated if these performances are nominated, not because they aren't good, but just because it's nominations for this hard movie. But, you know. Christian Bale and Amy Adams do a good job. I think Christian Bale very accurately portrays probably, you know, the fact that this is a very secretive, very withdrawn man, you know, and, and he, you know, he has, he, he captures Dick Cheney's manner of speaking very well. And in general, I think he does the emotionally withdrawn thing in a pretty effective way. I think, you know, I just never once got invested into the movie. So it's, it was hard for me to even appreciate you know, what I, what probably what were the high points in the movie in terms of the performances by these two actors. Yeah. I mean, our listeners know that I am a fan, fan of Amy Adams and I think she absolutely delivers in this role, right? She does everything in her power to make the best of her character, how limited it is. And the fact that I still thought she did such a good job 
even even though I think there's no way that Lynn isn't a more interesting person in real life than in this movie is, you know, I, I think it speaks volumes to the performances. I also think the supporting cast, a lot of them do a really good job. So you have yeah. Steve Carell as Donald Rumsfeld. You have, you know, it's not, it's not as good for Sam Rockwell as his performance last year from three billboards, but it's still, a it was good. almost a cameo to be honest. He's yeah. Barely- I mean, he probably has like 15 to 20 minutes of screen time at most. Yeah. Um, but it, still, I think it's a good, but not great performance. Like, I mean, I couldn't see him getting on a, he, I, I mean, there's no buzz around him getting a supporting actor nomination, but I couldn't see him getting one anyway. Um, Tyler Perry, I thought as, uh, I thought that was a really strong performance, uh, as, um, a Colin Powell. And then of course you have, you know, it's a long list, right? But then Alison Pell as, as Mary Cherry, uh, Mary Cheney. I think she does a good job, but again, the cast is the strongest part of this movie. And, you know, to circle back around to talk about Christian Bale briefly, I mean, we've seen these kind of transform physical transformations from him before. I'm thinking of, is it the machinist where he like lost a ton of weight? The fighter also did the same thing. Yeah. Got it right. Yeah. And then this is the first time we've seen him put on weight, I guess. But again, remarkable job. And then kind of dovetailing with that, not only his performance, but his transformation is the hair and makeup of this, of this movie is incredible. Like going, going and looking at pictures of, these, you know, these individuals uh, contemporarily, you know, contempor- is it contemporaneously? I think that's the right word. Yeah. Um, where, you know, you look at a picture of Dick Cheney from 2000, you know, whatever. And they, I mean, they nail, they nail it. You look at Lynn Cheney, they nail it. Like, and these are actors and actresses who, you know, they have their own appearance, right? And, the, and they, and they do transform them into these characters so well. And I think that I would, I mean, Scott, I'm not going to be disappointed if this if this movie wins a wins an Academy Award for hair and makeup. I know you will be, but the film did, like it deserves it. It's it's a shame that this is the backdrop of the Academy Award, right? It's it's a shame that this kind of movie to your, I mean, you've called it, uh, you've gone so far as to call it, you know, even a propaganda piece. But it, it's a shame that that's the context for the film. But like the actual, uh, you know, what what's actually happening on screen is something that's worthy of awards, in my opinion. I mean. Certainly the hair and makeup is excellent. I think there are better candidates in that category this year, not uh, least of which is the movie which we're going to talk about later, which I think also has excellent hair and makeup. But yeah, again, just because I I have such negative feelings towards this movie, uh, hearing its name called at any point, either tonight during the Golden Globes or during during the Oscars is going to, you know, arise some outrage in me just because I think all of these actors have been in much better movies all, I mean, even the people behind the scenes, I'm sure, have done, have, you know, been responsible for work in much better movies that they probably weren't honored for. So to see them honored for, for this movie would, would definitely get my blood boiling a little bit. But hey, what can you do? The Academy gonna Academy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it, this movie's gonna win awards, right? Like it's, or, I mean, at the very least, it's gonna get a lot of, it's gonna get a lot of nom- nominations, whether it's gonna get nominations. Yeah, and, and I and I do think it's gonna win some award, you know, whether it's Christian Bale, whether I mean, I don't. Hopefully, it's not. I don't. I'm just trying to go through nomination lists in my head. I don't think it's gonna be Amy Adams. If we're talking about performances, yeah, it would probably be Bale, right? And you know, maybe he deserves it. I again, this is gonna. It takes time for me to like sit down and think about these things about who I think actually deserves these awards. But th- and that being said. It's going to get nominations. You know, it's it might win tonight, even exactly to your point. And that is frustrating, especially, you know, I don't know if Adam McKay is tipped to be a, a best director now with the Oscars, but that's like a, that's going to actually really frustrate me. Um, I don't I usually don't get too worked up about nominations. Definitely not as much as you do, but I will get worked up if, if McKay is nominated for best director at the at the uh, Oscars. Yeah, I mean, 
I shouldn't get so worked up about these after these all these years because I think what people have realized in the years of of missed nominations is that the Oscars is kind of a joke. Like in terms of they don't really award the best movies; they award the movies that the you know the Academy either likes or that you know that they feel is going to make a statement. So I, I think that um, I shouldn't get so worked up about them because they don't really matter ultimately. But with that being said, I'm still going to get super angry, you know, about anything for this movie just because, uh, you know, it, it's it's just a, a, the latest in a long line of disappointments that, you know, we can go back to Michael Keaton losing for Birdman. We can go back to, of course, the Lego movie not even getting nominated for Best Animated Feature. I mean, you know, pick every year there's one or two of these that, uh, you know, make me mad. And I have a feeling the one or two of them this year, there may even be more. Um, they're going to involve this movie in some way. I mean, as a fun little question, Scott, which will be more upsetting to you? A Best Picture nomination for Bohemian Rhapsody or a Best Director nomination for McKay? Definitely a Best Director nomination for Adam McKay. I mean, I, th- I was actually thinking about this the other day, like what is my list of things which would make me the most mad? I think this has, this has you know, moved into the number one slot closely, just ahead of... Justin Hurwitz losing for his first man score would also make me extremely mad. Also, just as, uh, you know, Spider-Verse losing to The Incredibles for Best Animated Feature would also make me really mad. But I think this one is is at the top, just simply for the reasons that I've talked about before. I think, you know, it's, it's really dishonest, intellectually lazy, incredibly smug and condescending filmmaking that should not be rewarded in, in any way and, in fact, should be criticized uh, for the way that it talks down to and even insults, you know, in that mid credit scene, millennial millennial audiences when it should be doing the exact opposite. Right. And like, you know, if, if the point he's trying to make is that, you know, millennials have caused these sort of things to happen by not voting. Is this really the, you know, the approach you want to take to be like, hey, get out there and vote millennials. You, you know, you dumb idiots who only like Fast and Furious movies. I mean, not sure this is exactly how you want to go about it, Adam. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even think about, because I didn't see the post-credits scene, I wasn't even thinking about, like, yes, he, he over-explained so much of this movie, but I didn't realize, I didn't necessarily ever think of it as targeted at millennials. But um, with the post-credits edition there, that really make it really changes the perspective I have on, like, who, like, what this movie's message is i'm gonna go find it really does i I think i'm gonna go try and find the scene on youtube to see if it's out there um because i'm sure it's not a very long scene uh but that's so interesting because i i mean when the movie was over i i mean one i didn't even know or think that it would have a post like or a mid-credits or a post-credits scene and i was like ready to leave (laughs) to be really honest because and that's because to kind of segue here into talking a little bit more about the plot which i know we talked a little bit already like the last half hour of this movie is so unnecessary like I, this movie could have, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you are, you're here. Like the whole, the whole movie is unnecessary. I understand. Um, but for the last 20 to 30 minutes, everything like post, I don't even know, like everything post um, the night, like returning back to the beginning of the movie. Remember, po- yeah. I just think it's so unnecessary. Like it could have ended the movie. Like I didn't gain anything at all from seeing like the transplant sequence. I didn't feel any better about the voiceover from knowing who the, like the, the narrator was. I didn't, I definitely no, didn't feel any better knowing that like, I mean, I knew this, like I knew this happened already. Right. But I did, I definitely didn't feel any better at all about getting the implied sequence that, you know, Dick and, and Lynn told Liz Cheney, their other daughter to like roll Mary under the bus. Uh, like I didn't feel better about yeah. the one bright, like the one nice thing they said about Dick Cheney, than like erasing that 
from the movie. I just didn't feel anything good about 20, 30 minutes. It didn't add anything to it. It didn't, it just frustrated me more, not only because I had to sit through 20 to 30 more minutes of this movie, but that it actively <laughs> hurt itself. I think conti- or continued to hurt itself over the last 20 to 30 minutes. And it's just, there's so many parts of this movie that frustrate me. Again, the acting is, is stands out. And I think is some of the best of the year as a, you know, as a plot, as an ensemble, but so, I mean, almost everything else about this movie sucks. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, you talk about the those scenes. Are they really necessary? I think to Adam McKay, they are, because, again, it's completing the worst hits album, right? It's just here's a few more reasons why you should hate Dick Cheney, even, you know, going to going as far as, you know, during the whole heart transplant thing to say, I wish you were dead, Dick Cheney. Like, literally, that's how you have to interpret it. Like, it's it's so shocking and and misguided. Yeah, I mean, you talked earlier about this being like character assassination. It's definitely the most mainstream movie that I that I think that I know of that I have seen where it's it's the sole purpose of the movie is to assassinate an individual's character, you know, especially, well, I should say to assassinate a American a living American political figure's character. I'm I'm it, honestly it is like it's shocking not because of, you know, the actual politics of it even just like this person's still alive this person's uh, actions are still relevant today and still like happening it's uh, it, i just find it so interesting like sometimes you'll see this with documentaries of course like there are plenty of documentaries that um challenge and question the actions of certain american political figures but one documentaries aren't as mainstream as this and two it's it I, I like shocking is just the best word for it. Right. And, you know, to go back to your, to your word earlier, unless you want to, sorry, did you want to add something there? Well, I was just going to say, I think the reason it's so shocking is because, you know, by inserting this omniscient narrator and everything, he's making it so personal, right? Like it's not that he's showing us these things that Dick Cheney has done and saying, well, Hey, draw your conclusions for yourself. I think it's pretty clear from this that, you know, he's a bad dude. He makes it so personal by, you know, inserting this omniscient narrator, explaining everything. And then, you know, again, that heart transplant thing by saying, I wish you had died, Dick Cheney. Like, that's, I think, what where why it's so shocking, because it's, it's so personal. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's a really good point. And then, you know, kind of the last thing that I wanted to touch on that you mentioned earlier is that, you know, the use of the word p- power and the over explanation of all the plot. I literally felt that through the first hour of this movie. I think it did calm down a little bit in the back half of the film, but the first hour I felt like every other sentence, the word power was in it. I felt like I was literally getting bludgeoned over the head with the word power as if like, I didn't already understand again, to your point, like the first 15 times the word was used. I didn't understand that that was like everyone's motivation in this movie, right? Like you've made it so clear that that's what everyone's trying to do. Like you don't, you actually don't need to continue to use it. I mean, like you, you've made the, the character so one dimensional already. You don't need to continue to remind me how one dimensional they are. Yeah. I mean, Kanye West's song power has a more nuanced critique of, of power than this movie does. Like to be perfectly frank. Thank God you were frank about it. Uh, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I haven't, I know I haven't been frank the whole time, but wait, let's be perfectly frank this time. Yeah. Uh, and to be perfectly frank, I think I have nothing more to add about this movie so we can go ahead and enter wrap up if that's good with you. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, do you have a favorite scene? Uh, probably when it ended. Well, actually, when I thought <laughs> it, when I thought uh, it was going to end, and then we had the mid credits scene. Yeah. My favorite scene was when they were running the credits the first time because I was actually hoping the movie was only an hour. Yeah, um, after, over uh, after an hour, right? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I guess I, I don't really have one, to be honest with you. I was trying to think of, you know, like, was there an individual line or, or shot or anything that I kind of appreciated? But nope. You really can't come up with anything at all? This is this is it? This is... I mean, I thought at. Steve Carell was, was good. I liked his performance, you know. I, I've said that I, I like the performances. I don't know that I can point to, like, a specific, you know, part of each performance that I liked. But I Steve Carell, I might have enjoyed his performance the most, you know as Donald Rumsfeld, I think he has some interesting scenes early on as like, you know, the person who sort of gets Dick Cheney into politics and then ultimately becomes a victim of sort of the system that he helped Dick Cheney to learn by getting fired by, uh, you know, the president and and actually by Dick Cheney specifically. Um, but, you know, as far as individual scenes or moments, not one is springing to mind. I mean, there may be one, but, you know, not coming to mind. Fair enough. I think that um, one of one of the, the moments of so I, I like the scene the most, not because of what the movie was trying to do with it, but the uh, I think the dramatic irony or the self irony of it in that moment, where it talks about how you know after the fact, Colin Powell's most painful moment was giving the speech in front of the UN or or uh, about uh, the war before the war in Iraq. Yeah, started. justifying the war. Yeah, yeah. I think that the ironic part of that is. Uh, I, I often I'm now wondering if Tyler Perry's biggest regret is uh, performing in this movie. So. <laughs> it's like it reminds uh, I, me of the scene. It reminds me of the scene in Zombieland with Bill Murray where they're about to kill Bill Murray and they say, "Well, do you have any regrets?" And he says, "Garfield, maybe." <laughs> yeah, I think that that I mean that it's the the moment of irony there is it's like oh like this person really really hated having given the speech and like I wonder how many actors and actresses are hating the fact that they joined this movie. <laughs> Yeah, um, but that's that. All right, Scott. I think I'm pretty confident in saying that this is going to be the lowest score you go on the podcast. But let's see what it is. Yeah, I mean, look, I as much as everything in me wants to give this movie a zero, I think that that honestly might have the reverse effect of people because I think sometimes when you you say that a movie is so bad, people feel the need that oh, I need to go see this just because it's so bad. But this is not a case where a movie is so bad it's good. It's just bad. And I understand that Adam McKay is probably not going to care about what my score is since I'm a millennial. But with that being said, uh, Fast and the Furious 9 and 10 have already been ordered. Um, and so in light of that, I'd like to give uh, this movie a 1.0 in honor of uh, Fast and the Furious 10, which will almost unequivocally be a better movie than this as the last. How many have there been as the last eight Fast and the Furious movies have been? So suck it, Adam McKay. Yeah, I think he's going to lose some sleep over this review. Uh, for me, it comes in higher. I really like some of these performances, and ultimately it buoys the, the movie a little bit, whether, Scott, whether you ag- agree or not. And I'm <laughs> that being said, I'm giving it a 4.6, so it's not like I'm knocking this one out of the park. Astronomically high, in my opinion. I mean, it's astronomically high because, I mean, the entire cast is astronomically good. I mean, we didn't mention some of like the deep deep down the list of people here, but Bill Camp pops up in this movie as Gerald yeah. Ford. Well, I'm like, dang. And honestly, here's another thing which made me mad. I thought I was done being mad, but one more thing which made me mad. Alfred Molina, literally one of my favorite supporting character actors, they waste him in a twenty, literally 20-second cameo. But it's such a good metaphor. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not at all. Not at all. Well, Let's move on. Scott, we'll, we'll put you out of your misery. That should just about do it. For our discussion of Vice, when we return, we'll be discussing another biographical film, but this time from a century, several apart from this one, That is Mary, Queen of Scots. We'll be right back.
Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It's Got. Scott, the second movie we'll be reviewing today sees Josie Rourke, known for her theatrical direction, make her directorial debut on the silver screen with two of our favorite actresses in headlining roles. That's Mary Queen of Scots. This historical drama chronicles the adult life of Mary Stuart, the titular Queen of Scotland, and her after her return from France, uh, after her husband, King Francis II, dies when she's only 18 years of age. Rather than remarry, Mary decides to return to her native land of Scotland, where tensions with England, uh, where Margot Robbie's Queen Elizabeth I reigns, are high, and the Catholic-Protestant religious conflict is still boiling just under the surface, sometimes above the surface. With a supporting cast that includes Jack Loden, Joe Alwyn, David Tennant, Guy Pearce, and more, Mary finds herself surrounded by a group of power-hungry men jealous of a woman holding court, and she must repeatedly navigate political games designed to either strip or secure the power over her kingdom. Scott, did you find this female-driven period piece an interesting and informative tale, or might its message of men being cruel overshadow the rest of it? Yeah, I mean, I guess I sort of tipped my hand on our last episode on the on the best of the year episode because I actually had this as my number 14 movie of the year. Um, so I guess it, it's no surprise that I actually really did enjoy Mary Queen of Scots. Um, you know, wasn't sure what to expect going in just because I feel like this movie hasn't got the buzz that I expected it to get with, you know, these two lead actresses with the fact that it's, you know, a period setting, a historical, you know, drama. Um, you know, ha- just haven't seen the sort of trailers and, and everything that I expected to see. Uh, but I really enjoyed this movie. And, you know, I said to you that I think um, maybe I personally enjoyed it uh, more than a lot of people will. And I think that that's still true to some extent. I mean, I think that, you know, I really like English history, it really interests me. So I just have a natural interest in this story f- from that angle. I also, you know, sort of love the Shakespearean histories and like the way that they look at this idea that sort of, you know, the the way that wars are, are really won is not necessarily on the battlefield, but really sort sort of what's going on, you know, behind the scenes and in the palaces and even, you know, the bedchambers of these these leaders. Um, and I think this movie certainly, you know, explores that a lot. But I also think that this movie uh can appeal to people who don't have these same interests as me because it is, it does feel very relevant, which, you know, is something very difficult to do when you're telling a story that's 400 or so years old, you know, to make it have modern day resonance is tough. But I think this movie accomplishes that sort of in what, you know, you're talking about with, yeah. So, I mean, you've described the plot accurately in terms of, you know, it's, it's really about um, the relationship that each of these leaders have with the men who are their counselors, but that's not how the movie was marketed, right? Like the movie was marketed as this is Mary versus Elizabeth. This is Saoirse Ronan versus Margot Robbie, like, you know, for the the throne of England. And that's really not at all what this movie is. Instead, it's a, you know, it, it is what you said it was. It, it's more about the way that these men um, are able to use the, you know, patriarchal society to, usurp the authority of these leaders who, you know, on the surface, they are the ruler, they are the queens, but underneath the surface, really, they're just same subject to this same patriarchal system. Uh, and, you know, the, the men are able to use that to their advantage and, you know, to manipulate these women in a way that, you know, renders them essentially powerless. 
Um, and, you know, again, that's not at all what I expected to get from this story, but it certainly feels relevant, you know, today in, in the Me Too era. I mean, this movie certainly has a lot of, of relevance um, when you're talking about where we are, you know, today in terms of, you know, the what, what all went down with the, the Me Too movement and sexual assault in Hollywood and, you know, the way that, that people in power use their power dynamics to, uh, you know, mistreat other people um, in, in shocking ways often. And, you know, that's what happens in this movie. You know, as a matter of fact, these two actresses and these two characters don't even share a scene together until almost the end of the movie. And that's the only scene that they share together. Um, it's a really good scene, um, but they only share one scene together. So I think we can kind of just dispel the notion that this is a woman v. woman tale, um, which, of course, you know, people have been pitting women against each other for, you know, all of all of time. So it's perhaps not surprising to see the movie marketed as that, but that's not what this movie is. And I think what it is, is is a really effective historical drama that is extremely well acted by these two leads. Um, you know, two of the best performances by actresses this year. Um, and I think, you know, that again, the, the relevance of the story, the fact that uh, it focuses on these behind the scenes sort of, uh, you know, shady goings on, uh, I think all add to the appeal of the movie, um, and I think provide an entertaining tale for audiences who who may not, you know, be as invested in the story, be may not may not as invested in, you know, sort of English history in general. I think there's a lot of you know human drama going on here. Sometimes they take it a little too far into sort of soap opera territory, but I think in for the most part they are able to stay away from that and tell a story that feels pretty authentic. So yeah, I really enjoyed the movie. Yeah, to your point, I think my biggest takeaway from this movie walking out of the theater was it was not at all as advertised. Margot Robbie is not in this movie for longer than like half an hour. And I think <laughs> the ultimate point of this movie, to your point, is not showing is not showing this conflict between Scotland and England, but rather showing this conflict that it did, it did exist to some degree under the surface between Scotland and England, uh, less around religious divides and more just around uh, a trail of succession. But that this ultimate... Um, yeah, this conflict is driven far more by the <laughs> fragility of the men who surround these women, particularly that of the you know the Scottish men who surrounded uh, you know Queen Mary. <clears throat> and I think that you know if it's it's unclear if it's meant to be to me it was actually unclear whether it was meant to be a statement about how men continue to treat powerful women today. Or whether it's just a, an analysis uh, and showing of, of people how, you know, yes, you know, this isn't some new, this new trend. Men have been attacking women and to your point, pitting them against each other, which is kind of exactly what they do in this movie uh, since, you know, since the beginning of time. Yeah, I mean, you know, whether it was intentional or not, I think it certainly has that resonance again in the era that we find ourselves in today. Yeah. And, you know, to your point at a high level here, and we'll dive deeper into each of these topics, I actually found you mentioned some of the best performances and actresses this year. I think Margot Robbie in particular takes that uh, for me uh, of the two women who lead in this movie. Her performance is, is slightly stronger in my opinion. And I think at times the reason why, yeah, I think at times the reason why Sharshi Ronan's performance maybe takes a bit of a dip for me is that I think she maybe overacts this a little bit. I mean, I think it's still ultimately a good performance from her, but at times it really felt like she was trying maybe a little bit too hard. And maybe that's me being unfair, but it just felt like there was a little bit more there than there needed to be from her. And ultimately, I think Margot Robbie, granted, she has less screen time and less opportunity to do this, but feels 
like she strikes that right balance of of her acting performance better than 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 Charshi Ronan did. Yeah, I don't know that I necessarily got that from from Saoirse Ronan's performance. I do think what I like is that the movie gives us two very different figures, uh, in, you know, with these queens. It's not, you know, the same. The, the, there's nothing samey about the, you know, the way that these two characters feel. You know, Margot Robbie is obviously the more sort of withdrawn. You know, she she's dealing with a lot of emotional turmoil and vulnerability from the fact that she can't have children. Um, and so she gets a lot of, uh, you know, s- serious emotional scenes in this movie. And you already kind of see that she has this defeated sort of uh, air about her even before, you know, the, the men in her court start to sort of assert their will. Well, she's almost, you know, rendered herself powerless, um, you know, by the fact that, she, you know, she can't have an heir. She has to have Mary produce the heir for her. Um, and so, you know, her, her legacy is ultimately not going to be passed down. Um, but on the other end, you have, you know, Saoirse Ronan, who sort of has all the power in her court, right? And I think that her performance reflects this. She, you know, she's a very strong-willed, very stubborn character. Um, you know, she even leads the the Scots, Scottish people into battle in the one battle scene. Um, you know, she's a very strong leader, um, yeah, very hubris, hubristic, I'd say, yeah. uh, to a fault. Yeah. And, but I mean, at the same time, again, it, it shows kind of, it doesn't really matter, you know, what kind of leader you are, how much of a face you put on in terms of, you know, your, your confidence and your authority, uh, you know, you're still going to be victimized by what's going on in society. Yeah. Particularly victimized by men, I would say, which, yeah, again, it it comes through very strongly when you see this film and and doesn't come through at all in the trailers to be honest uh which i mean uh, yeah i think that's probably, this is probably the most like misadvertised movie of the year of 2018 and that's not a bad thing i don't mean that in a bad way it just was a totally different movie when i saw it than what i expected yeah but i think for the better honestly it, it was a different type of movie oh for sure i i, I definitely agree with that all right so that kind of hits our general impressions and you know you think very highly of the cast in this, particularly our two leading ladies. So why don't we just talk a little bit about them? You got uh, Sharsha Ronan, who plays you know Queen Mary, the Mary Queen of Scots from the from the title, and then you know, we can start there, and then at some point we'll transition over to Margot Robbie, who has a more obviously more minor role as Elizabeth. Yeah, I mean, I think again for for the reasons I've sort of talked about, I think she does a great job. I think she, for one, she has a good Scottish accent, which you know I d- d- wasn't sure you know how what to expect from that, but I think she does. Wait, is it so? Wait, wait, wait. So I actually had this question about this. It sounds a a hell of a lot like an Irish accent to me. Well, I don't know. See, I think, I think it, there is that tendency, like, you know, people always point this out about the, the famous one is Sean Connery and the untouchables and how literally he doesn't, it's the other way around. He doesn't even try to do an Irish accent. He just speaks like Sean Connery. And of course he's Scottish. Uh, and the, the difference is clearly noticeable here. I think maybe there are some moments where Saoirse. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, also, I mean, I'll admit like from, for the untrained ear, they might sound similar. Yeah. But, it didn't sound like she was changing her own accent that much. I wasn't just, dist- if so, I, it wasn't distracting from, you know, her performance to me, the fact that maybe she's, yeah, I agree. Accent sound. But yeah, I, I liked her, you know, I think she shows some range here uh, that maybe we haven't seen in the past. Although, I mean, I think, you know, you could almost draw some similarities between this character and, and Lady Bird and sort of, in terms of their like, you know, strong defiant spirit, I think both of these characters, you know, reflect that. Um, so I think, you know, maybe she's drawing on, on some of that experience here, but again, I mean, she's, 
she has such a, a strong screen presence at this point um, and such a ease about her performances that I think um, it's going to take a lot for me to like actually criticize one of her performances just because she's so naturally strong as an actress. And I think that this role plays to her strengths more or less. So, I, you know, maybe it's not, you know, a, a um, experimental role or, or a different role in the way that you know, Lady Bird maybe was, but I don't think that that takes away from the fact this is a really strong performance. Honestly, wasn't wasn't expecting a comparison of this of this performance to her performance in Lady Bird, though. I think that that's a that's a reasonable point to make. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Sacramento, nineteen nineties to fifteen what seven fifteen sixties fifteen seventies in Scotland. Why not? Basically the same. I think very little has changed over time. So, I mean, I, I mean, maybe, maybe this movie would argue that, yeah, maybe there hasn't been that much that's changed over time. Men still suck. Exactly. So, <laughs> but yeah, so I think I agree with that. Her performance is really strong. She shows a lot of, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree that she shows a lot of range. I think she shows a different kind of performance than what she's done before. I mean, again, I'll admit it's been a little bit since I've seen this movie. So maybe I'm just forgetting the obvious uh, exemplars of this, but I just think she shows a much more assertive character than we've seen in any of her prior movies. So, and by say when I say any, I mean particularly Lady Bird and Brooklyn. I don't think she demonstrates uh, like a, an assertive personality in, her, in any in either of her characters. Right, like they're they're very different characters for one thing. <laughs> you know, they're not queens, for example. Um, and so, in that sense, she shows a different acting ability in this movie and a, a different character. But I, I don't know if I saw within the movie a lot of range. And, you know, I'm very open-minded about this. I'm open to being convinced that she shows a lot of range. If you have any examples that come to your mind for this. I mean, I think I probably misspoke. I think I probably was going for more what you're saying in terms of uh, it's a slightly different role from what we've seen her in in the past. Uh, so maybe she shows some more range in terms of what she is capable of as an actor. Maybe not, you know, specifically range in the, it throughout the movie. Got it. Now that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, no, but still, it's a good performance. It's different. I mean, I always want to give people, I mean, over the course of the year, our listeners will, will know that I like to give credit to people who are doing a, a different kind of character because it, it is really easy to stay in your comfort zone, I think. In, in, you know, in, especially these days where it, you know, if you're looking for a movie that's going to play to your strengths, uh, the, and that being those, the ones that you've already demonstrated, I think it's not that hard to find a director who's willing to write a role for you that plays to your strengths at this point, uh, in, in movie making. So I, I always applaud that. And so I think that she does a good job with that. And, you know, acknowledging at times, I think maybe she overacts a little bit, but I know that you feel differently. And, and I'm sure plenty of other people also feel differently about that. But moving on to Margot Robbie, again, a little bit less material to work with for her in this movie. Like I mentioned sort of a little bit earlier that she doesn't show up that much and probably is only limited to about half an hour of screen time in this movie. But what we get, I think, is always very impactful. I think she's definitely the stronger of two good performances. And I would love to hear your your maybe more in-depth thoughts about this. Yeah, it's funny because I was listening to a critic recently talk about, I think maybe it was Alonzo Duralde talking about this movie and, and Margot Robbie's like choices recently and the fact that, you know, Margot Robbie is obviously like one of the most beautiful women um, on the planet probably. But recently between this movie and I, Tanya, it seems like she's choosing like deliberately like unattractive or gaudy you know characters to play uh maybe possibly if this is the intent you know to show off what she can do more as an actress you know show that she's not just like the pretty face or whatever she's not just the bond girl uh 
obviously she hasn't played a Bond girl, but symbolically she's not a Bond girl. Um, and I think, I mean, if that's her goal in doing this mission accomplished, because I think she, uh, you know, is excellent again here. And I agree. She, I, I think I'd probably give her the edge over, over Saoirse Ronan. Um, though, um, though it's a close call. I mean, again, for the reasons that I talked about before, I think she shows a lot of vulnerability in this performance. Um, definitely a far cry from her performance as, as Tanya Harding, I guess I would say, although, you know, maybe there are some flashes, um, of that, that, uh, Tanya Harding who cries into the mirror while putting her makeup on, you know, maybe we see that flashes of that in, in Queen Elizabeth here, but I think, you know, it's hard to get beneath the surface of this care of, you know, this historical figure, because I feel like the story of Queen Elizabeth has been told a lot. Um, you know, the fact that she's, uh, you know, a barren queen and, and can't produce an heir is obviously a well-known part of, of history. Uh, but I still think she brings something fresh to the performance, her whole, you know, the, she has this whole bit about how uh, she's basically a man, uh, and, you know, from the way that she, you know, styles herself to the fact that, you know, she can't produce a, a child in the society that she lives in. She might as well be a man because really that's, women or try to be a man because really that's what women have to offer in the eyes of, you know, the men in this society is, is a child. Um, so I think, you know, it's a, it's an interesting performance and, and, uh, you know, when it, when the two actresses finally, you know, do go toe to toe in the end, or, I mean, not go toe to toe, that's probably not the right race for it. When they do finally have their, you know, big climactic scene together. Um, yeah, I think Margot Robbie comes off as uh, a very empathetic character in the sense that, you know, she wants to be able to help Mary. She probably, even though they're, they're different, she probably sees a lot of herself in Mary. Um, but ultimately she can only do her best for so long. And I actually think this is something that the movie doesn't portray quite right, because actually it, it, it was probably like 20 years or so after, you know, Mary abdicated to England that she was actually executed. But the movie basically makes it look like it was a couple weeks later uh, because actually they don't age Saoirse Ronan at all. Yeah, that was the tricky part because they, they throw the date on the screen, right? They, they yeah. show you that it's 20, like just true, visibly, yeah. they show you that it's 20 years later because they say it's like 1880 or whatever the, whatever the year was. Uh, you'd probably know. Um, but they, they do, they immediately jump from that scene between Elizabeth and Mary to the execution, which actually starts the movie. I also thought, I mean, uh, speaking of that, I thought I thought the opening scene was an interesting way to start. The, like to start at the, to start at the end was such a, was an interesting choice stylistically yeah. for the film. And I don't know if I liked it that much, but uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. Yeah. With that being said, I really liked the execution scene at the end, and you know, the final shot that it ends on is really pretty haunting, which uh, I did appreciate. Uh, but yeah, as far as Margot Robbie goes, great performance, uh, definitely in the Oscar talks for me if not like firmly in there definitely should be in consideration for supporting role because it is it is definitely a supporting role although i had my doubts going into it it definitely is a supporting role i agree i, I don't know if she's going to make the i don't know i don't know if she'd make a final list of five for me i need to again sit down and think about this just like you but certainly a short list uh, she's definitely she's definitely on that for me it's a it's a great performance to your point about that scene where she and uh Cersei ronan come face to face for the the first time and she comes off as a more empathetic person. She's clearly a more mature queen. I think that's like that's ultimately the way that I would describe it. She's a more mature character yeah. than than Saoirse Ronan's character, and it's ultimately why she probably succeeded uh, in her in being a queen as opposed to Saoirse Ronan, 
because she just navigated those political games better than she did. That is, I don't think that makes her a better person because ultimately, I mean, you can so empathize with the position that that Queen Mary has put in throughout the film. And sure. I think ultimately, in spite of her ability to retain power within England, I'd imagine that Margot Robbie's character, Queen Elizabeth, what you know, that empathy comes from the fact that she, w- I think she wishes she were more like Sarsha Ronan's Queen Queen Mary. She, I mean, obviously, she wishes she could bear a child. I think, but I think she ultimately wishes that she stood up more to the men around her rather than yeah. deferring to them as you know in the right moments that probably made her more frustrated at herself but ultimately allowed her and permitted her to consolidate, retain the power that she, that she wielded. And then, you know, by, by the end of, of the movie, and I'm not talking about by, like the execution, by the time that that scene happens where they face off against each other, she's had to make so many sacrifices about her own personal life, right. In order to yeah. stay in power. And, and I'm sure there is some regret. And, and I think that you can see that regret on her face in her words and that final scene. And, you know, the more I talk about it, the more, uh, excited, or if that's the right word, the more uh, pleased I get with that performance from her. I think it's really, really strong. Yeah, I think I think you've described it right. Like we see her making sacrifices throughout the movie. Uh, you know, early on, we see her. She has to send. Uh, I forget what his name is. Uh, Dudley. It's. I think that's. His, I think it's Robert Dudley or something is his name. But basically, her her very good friend. It's Joe Alwyn again. Mr. Taylor Swift making his second appearance in in a Victoria. You know. Old England drama. Yes, yeah, uh, his season. character is Robert Dudley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, she has to send like he he's like her best friend, one of her really good friends. You know, basically to be uh, Queen Mary's husband, uh, and you know she ultimately rejects him. But obviously, you know we see the the trouble and the pain that she has uh, in coming to that decision. Uh, you know, to send her friend to a place where she may never see him again. Yeah, you're mentioning the supporting roles too, and this isn't this isn't Dudley. This is Darnley, Jack Loden's character. So Mary Queen of Scots, well, first husband in the movie, but second husband in in real life, right? Um, but it was so strange to see Brendan Coyle playing that guy, you know, um, Lord Darnley's father, because he's like Bates from um, what is it, Downton Abbey? It was so strange to see to see him in that role. I couldn't, I literally couldn't not see the kind of the the butler. That he was, and I hear he's like unrecognizable in this movie as one of um, Elizabeth's like. Advisors. Yeah, William. I think he plays Cecil William Cecil. Yeah. He's an advisor to Queen Elizabeth. But you know, you're absolutely right. And then, uh, I mean, we've already started talking about some of the supporting roles, right? I think David Tennant's uh, probably the most notable of the supporting roles, in my opinion. Who, I mean, known for how for his acting quality and his you know his eccentric roles maybe but he is john knox who's a protestant cleric in the movie and i mean famous through history two people will recognize that name i think that he is he's something else in this movie yeah i wish we could have seen more of him because he actually gets to like have some fun and cut loose with his character which we don't see you know david Tennant is usually playing the the shakespearean hero or whatever you know we've seen him as hamlet and Macbeth and you know all of these people so we don't get to see him like cut loose and have fun a lot but he he get, definitely gets to do that here as you know you know john knox who's like this really hyper religious uh you know sort of activist who is going around and giving you know these big speeches and trying to you know get a crowd of people to follow him um and i think he makes the most of what little stream time he has yeah, I, I agree. I think my my one note around this is that I actually found, I mean, we've mentioned some other names, right? But I actually found most of the other performances to be fairly forgettable in terms of the supporting cast I think uh, outside of John, outside of David Tennant. I think, uh, I think that the actor you mentioned before who plays Darnley, I think he is fine, but 
some of the other characters, I, I agree that like all the men sort of seemed to blend together at a certain point um, to the point where I wasn't sure always who was talking. And even like, you know, towards the end of the movie, when Mary has to uh, marry her third husband, um, I was like, wait a minute, who is this guy again? Yeah, he was like, I think his, his name is Bothwell and he was like the leader of her. Well, she was like his most trusted advisor in terms of like actually executing on her orders or whatever. I mean, that, that was the point that actually, I mean, this is such a good point. I mean, we'll kind of transition to talk about the plot now, I think, but that was actually the point in the movie where towards, you know, the, the you're like two thirds of, of the way into this movie, maybe even later where she's being, she ends up getting like, she's basically betrayed by this guy. Who's like been a very loyal servant to her throughout the entire film. Yeah. Betrayed by this guy because of either his own or, you know, these other people's ambitions to, take her power from her essentially. Well, right. It seems, it seems like it's mainly because of her brother and also, uh, the guy who plays Bates on Downton Abbey. It's like, they're kind of in cahoots to get rid of. Right. There's also some other guy too. I can't remember. His yeah. Name. There's another guy in there, but okay. But I mean, that that's true, but that means like he didn't have to do it. Right. Like yeah. he didn't have to go along with them and then he ultimately rapes her. And I just don't understand well, not, it's not that I just don't understand. That was just the point in the movie where I'm like, you know, okay, if this, this is what really happened, I guess. I really don't know. And I mean, they're probably getting some creative leeway here, right? Like, like we don't know exactly how things went down, I would assume. But I just I just thought this was so... This was the moment in the film where I'm like, this entire film is... Like, this this entire film is only about how, <laughs> how shitty men are um, to women. And, like, that's not a bad thing. I was just like... I was kind of exhausted at that point, to be yeah. really honest. No, I, I, I don't know how you felt. I think that's fair too. I was like, man, this is really like she had to go through this whole thing again. Um, but you know, maybe that's the point. Maybe you know, the point is that we are exhausted of it, and yet, you know, here we are, four hundred years later, and it's still sort of happening. Fair enough, I think that's probably true. I I think that my only other problem with the plot, and then I don't know if you have anything you want to add, is that you you kind of mentioned this at the beginning, but it really there are moments where I feel like it really oversimplifies probably history a little bit. Yeah. And the one point that I know that I mentioned to you, and I, I can't claim responsibility for coming up with this idea myself, although it perfectly captured what I felt during this movie is that I was reading some review and I, I, don't, I can't remember who it was. So I apologize to the person who wrote this review originally, but ultimately their comment was that it seems like a, a vast oversimplification to boil down the entire history of this time period of, uh, you know, the, the Scottish English succession in the mid to late 1500s to an act of oral sex. And, you know, you have Darnley, who is, again, Mary's first husband in the movie, second husband in real life, ultimately essentially convince her to marry him. It okay. seems like at well, least th- but this, because, of, because of this act. This is my problem. Like, I'm not sure it's because it seems to me from the movie, like she's already agreed to marry him and that this is just sort of them consummating their engagement. And in fact, like later on in the movie, when we have the scene with Bothwell, like you said, you know, he comes into the room and tells the handmaidens, I've agreed to marry your, your, you know, your queen. Now you leave now. So, you know, so basically, so we can have sex. So it seems like that the, the sexual acts are supposed to be sort of after, at least after the engagement has happened. So I, I, I sort of, I sort of got a different impression from that scene that they'd already agreed to marry each other, you know, in the scene where they go walking on the moors or wherever it is. Um, and, you know, they have their their moment that they share together. And then this is just sort of what comes after that. Uh, but, you know, if that's not the case, then, I mean, yeah, you're right. It, it, it does kind of like it, it is a little uh, I, I, I would definitely think that would be an over, oversimplification to say, like, 
it all verged on his like sexual prowess. I think that what you're saying about the Moors is, is I actually do think it's wrong. I think that that was like the, the initial sort of um, conversation attempt, like, Oh, like, would you consider marrying me? Could I be your King? Because the actual engagement happens when they're riding. I forget where they're riding to, but they, oh, you know, right, they ride yeah, ahead on their horses. Well, and that's after this happens. But the point still stands. I think that for me, it it happened before the you know the scene that you're talking about. But yeah, it, you're right. It was in that riding scene, not when they go walking. Right. So I mean, again, I don't, I don't actually, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I just think that uh, she probably would have married him regardless. I just thought that the ordering of events made it feel more so than it should have that that was the cause of everything and you know again maybe that's just my own fault for oversimplifying it that way maybe reading that way into it when the you know maybe the reality is exactly and i don't again i don't disagree with this like the reality is they they more or less got engaged in that first kind of walking through the moors i don't know is there anything else you'd like to add to the plot or are you in good shape to to move on yeah just i would just add that i mean yeah it probably there probably is a little bit of oversimplification but there's probably also a steep learning curve because like a lot of people aren't as familiar with the story. And I think for the most part, they do a good job of explaining things in an easy enough to understand way where even if, you know, you're not as well versed in this period of history, even if you, you know, aren't familiar with Gothic dramas, Victorian dramas like this, um, you know, you're going to be able to slide in there pretty easily and, and know what's going on without having any sort of strong basis in the actual historical events. Fair enough. I, I'd agree with that. All right, so I think the kind of thing, last topic that I want to hit before we move on to our wrap-up phase, and that is, you know, we, we've mentioned this on a prior podcast, and I think it's it's fair because they released at the same time. They they have similar, they, they thematically, well, I shouldn't say thematically. They contextually are very similar movies just because of the time periods and the, and the settings of them. But a lot of people, I think, have kind of thought of this movie as going, you know, up against the favorite. Obviously, anyone who has seen these two movies will understand that they are very, very different in what they're doing and what they accomplish in the films. But I'm curious to like get your perspective on this. I, I've seen people as like, you know, if there's two there's two period dramas set in, you know, Victorian slash pre-Victorian England. Uh, we'll say historical England. How about that? And it, it's about queens and, and their courts. And, and but, you know, again, raise my hand and say, that's the extent of the comparison that I think that you can make between these two movies. But ultimately, I think because people make their decisions about what movies they go see before they go see the movies, because that's how it works, uh, they have to ultimately choose, and they're probably comparing these two movies. And I'd love to just get hear your thoughts on the comparison between these two movies, um, that, that being Mary Queen of Scots and The Favorite. Well, I mean, as you're alluding to, I don't think it's really a fair comparison outside the ver- some very superficial similarities between the two of them. I think that both movies are absolutely worth seeing. I mean, I don't know that I would say one is better than the other. I'm, I mean, I guess I ranked Mary Queen of Scots a couple spots higher than I did The Favorite, but I think they both do very different things and they both succeed very well at those things. Like, I think that The Favorite is absolutely worth seeing because it's something so original, right? Like, when we talked about the movie, I said, I've never seen anything like this before. Um, and so I think, you know, it's worth, it's absolutely worth seeing for what Yorgos Lanthimos is able to bring. Uh, you know, to this traditional Victorian story. On the other hand, I think if you want the traditional Victorian story, pre-Victorian, whatever you want to call it, uh, the Mary Queen of Scots is a really good example of, you know, while it does have, you know, maybe some modern day touches to it, it's a pretty, you know, straightforward, familiar, familiar, you know, Victorian tale. 
his, you know, historical drama. So, I mean, I think that it's absolutely going to satisfy you if that's what you want, because it's a very well done example of that genre. So I think that really it just depends on what you want from the movie. But in general, if you're just looking to see a good movie, then you can't go wrong with either of them. If you want something that's more original, something that you're perhaps not as familiar with seeing, uh, go see The Favorite. If you're more of a traditionalist, I would say go see Mary, Queen of Scots. But they're, again, the virtues of both are are great. Yeah, I think that's well put. I'd say that if you're looking for that traditional historical drama story uh, coming out of England, I think that Mary, Queen of Scots is your bet. For The Favorite, I think if you're looking for something different, something original, and, you know, Scott, you may disagree with this, but I think the acting overall is better, <clears throat> better in The Favorite. Um, I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you want to put it simply, because they have three incredible actresses in that movie. Man, and and only Nicholas has two. Holt. And Nicholas Holt, who, you know, what? I'm, I'm, I was listening to a lot of Collider stuff over, over the break and everyone, over, or I shouldn't say everyone, Christian seems very adamant that yeah. uh, in line with you that Nicholas Holt is not getting enough hype for his performance. I was glad to hear him say that. Yeah. So you know, that that's, I think that's probably a fair take on it. If you want that historic, if, you, if you're looking for a traditional historical drama, Mary Queen of Scots, if you want something more original, some, you know, some of the best acting you'll see this year from an ensemble cast. You know, you can't go wrong with the favorite, but ultimately you should enjoy both, I think. All right. I think it's good to enter wrap up phase here, Scott. What's your favorite scene from Mary Queen of Scots? Yeah. So I mentioned the execution scene. I think that might actually be my favorite. I really liked, um, you know, the way that they ended the movie in a really haunting way. I also really like the scene between the two women, um, you know, the, the one scene that they have together. <clears throat> I also like the battle scene, which we haven't mentioned. You know, I think it's it it uh, very effectively conveys sort of the brutality of, uh, you know, the way that these battles were fought at the time, um, and you know, gets to this really sort of suspenseful moment where Mary's brother is about to be killed, uh, right as the, you know the English surrender and and you know retreat. Um, so I thought that that was a well done scene as well. So yeah, a lot to like here. Yeah, I think that there's probably a handful of scenes. That are good. I'm glad you brought that one up. That's definitely a point in the movie that we hadn't talked about too much. That was really nice. And for me, I think, again, it probably comes down to either the execution scene or that scene between Margot Robbie and Saoirse Ronan finally going face to face. I think that if I'm thinking of a particular moment, I did find the moment where they like strip her black garb off in the execution scene and revealing like the, the brilliant red dress oh, that she's yeah. wearing that awesome. as kind of a very breathtaking moment and not in like yeah. a, not, not in a first man kind of way in terms of taking breath away in terms of the cinematography, but more just like, Ooh, that's really cool. I uh, wasn't expecting that. And so, yeah, I think I'd probably go with that or again, you know, that kind of whole sequence where Mary and Elizabeth are together. And also excellent hair and makeup, maybe the best for me this year. Like the, we, we, when we see Queen Elizabeth on like the full painted face and everything, it's like, it's great. It doesn't look, uh, you know, cheap or like, tacky at all yeah i'm sure there's absolutely nothing cheap about putting that makeup on well, marco yeah. robbie probably took hours <laughs> yeah all right so let's put a score on it scott out of 10 i'm guessing it's going to be higher than 1.0 but what's it going to be <laughs> yeah 8.6 i really enjoyed this movie uh you know it's number 14 on my list of the year's best movies and i think you should absolutely see it while it's still in theaters all right 8.6 from scott a little bit lower for me Going with 7.2. Still a good movie. Definitely worth seeing. Yeah. All right, Scott, with that, I think that should just about wrap up our discussion of Mary, Queen of Scots. <laughs> Let's take another short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a few more movies and some news. Back in a sec. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back for part three of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, there's at least one other movie you'd like to talk about before we hit some news items, and let's start with Bad Times at the El Royale. Yeah, so I'm a man of my word. Um, I know I said on the, uh, the Top 10 podcast when this movie came up as number five on our guest uh, Elisha's list that I really wanted to see this movie um, and that I was going to, you know, it was top of my list to catch up with. Uh, you know, before I get back to school and, you know, back in the thick of things. And so I did just a couple of days after we recorded that, actually, I watched Bad Times at the El Royale. Of course, this is from Drew Goddard, who made Cabin in the Woods. Um, it's sort of a uh, Tarantino style narrative, almost Pulp Fiction style narr- narrative about these, you know, different characters who all end up at this, uh, you know, hotel on the border between California and Nevada, literally on the border to the point where you can stay in Nevada, or you can stay in California if you want. The hotel, you know, covers both. And we sort of have this very eccentric cast of characters. So Jeff Bridges is this priest with sort of a shadowy background. We have Cynthia Erivo, who's like a Motown singer, um, who's on a tour. John Hamm plays a very chatty uh, salesman of, I think it's vacuum cleaners or something like that. Um, And uh, and then we also have Dakota Johnson, who just plays a a very uh, withdrawn and mysterious woman who... You know, they all show up to the hotel around the same time asking for rooms. Uh, And, you know, of course, we find out that all of them are are sort of harboring some type of secret, which, you know, comes together ultimately in uh, in what I think is a very satisfying way. Uh, That's, you know, that's my real takeaway from the movie. I think this movie is it's pretty long. It's about two hours, 20 minutes, I would say. And it certainly takes its time getting to the climax. And I think, you know, there are parts which are slower than others, just, you know, by the nature of the film, because it is, um, you know, telling so many different stories. There's going to be some parts which aren't as interesting as others. But I think, first of all, it has an outstanding cast. Obviously, you know, those names I mentioned, um, Jeff Bridges and Cynthia Erivo actually have a really nice chemistry together. They share a lot of the se- their scenes together. Um, and I really enjoyed both of their performances. I mean, Jeff Bridges is always great. Like, he's getting the Cecil B. DeMille Award tonight at uh, the Golden Globes, actually. He's so great. Uh, but Cynthia Erivo is somebody who's really broke through this year between this and in Widows, where she played sort of the runner. And I think, you know, she has a, you know, a much more substantial role in this movie. And I think she knocks it out of the park. So I'm really excited to see what she can offer going forward. I think she's mostly been a, a stage actress in the past. <clears throat> John Hamm, I think, mo- makes the most of his supporting role uh, as well. And Chris Hemsworth has a small part where he shows up later. Uh, I won't really say what his part in the movie is because, you know, his character is actually, you know, pretty essential to the climax of the movie. Well, he is the poster of this movie, isn't he? Yeah, but still, the poster doesn't reveal, you know, sort of what purpose he serves in this movie, which I think is pretty integral to the plot. But he has a nice little cameo in the last 20, 30 minutes. But yeah, in general, so, I mean, I say it moves slowly, but I think... When it gets to that climax, when everything comes together, it comes together in a really satisfying way. And I think that, you know, this is an example of a movie which may not be completely successful, but I admire its 
failures maybe in some areas because it is trying so much and it's trying to be something really original. And I think Drew Goddard is really a filmmaker to watch going forward between this and Cabin in the Woods. Um, I think, you know, his dialogue isn't as sharp as Tarantino's, which, you know, perhaps isn't a surprise and perhaps it's a very high bar to reach. But, you know, just because of the style of the movie, it is going to be compared to Tarantino's, I think. And I think his dialogue doesn't reach that high bar. Um, But again, the originality of, you know, just the concept of the movie, the way that it all comes together, I think definitely makes this a movie to watch and makes, again, Drew Goddard uh, definitely a director to watch going forward. Uh, so I give it a 7.5. This was a very solid watch, and, and I was, you know, I was pretty satisfied ultimately when the movie came together. Although, you know, it won't, did, wouldn't have landed in my top 10 list in the way that it landed in Elisha's. Yeah, I think that, I mean, to, to your point, you talked about people who are kind of breaking out. And it's Cynthia Erivo this year, big year for her. Of course, Dakota Johnson's not having a breakout year, right? She's already very well established at this point because of the Fifty Shades franchise. But she's having a big year, right? She's been in three major releases. You have Fifty Shades Freed at the beginning of the year, which I know we we kind of made fun of uh, when it came out as you know just how high grossing it was is just pathetic compared to like I think it came out at the same time as Black Panther Annihilation. Obviously, Black Panther out outdid it, but the fact that it did better than Annihilation was frustrating to us. I yeah. think at the time. Yeah, but but she think, was also in Suspiria yeah. earlier this year and then Bad Times at the El Royale. So she's had a good year. Yeah, I think she's trying to be taken more seriously as an actress. Obviously, the, the Fifty Shades movies probably don't, yeah, you know, probably aren't treated with uh, a lot of respect and nor should they be, in my opinion. Uh, but I appreciate her, uh, you know, branching out and trying to do some more serious projects. And, you know, having seen both this movie and Suspiria, I think she's great in both of them. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, given what movies she's trying to do, now, I think that she is coming through as someone who's trying to get away, uh, for example, you know, trying to get away from that maybe being boxed in by Fifty Shades, yeah. etc. with her new roles. Yeah, definitely. Cool. And there's another movie that you wanted to talk about. Well, maybe I use movie loosely because it's not really a movie, but Taylor Swift's Reputation World Tour vid- uh, video came out on Netflix, I think, recently, and, and you... Gave it five stars on Letterboxd. Heck yeah, I did. Um, yeah, so I mean, this is something which actually doesn't come up very often on the podcast, but um, in addition to being obviously the movie buff that I am, I'm also a huge music fan. Um, you know, huge live music fan, go to all kinds of concerts, um, you know, half dozen, dozen a year, uh, been to three festivals, collect vinyl records. So, you know, big music fan. And one of my favorite artists is Taylor Swift, um, I think not only because of her songwriting and, and music, um, but also just because of her her as a person. <clears throat> and I think she's the, like the rare example of someone who uses their uh, immense celebrity and, and influence for good rather than evil. Um, and so I appreciate that about her. Um, but I've never actually been able to see her live, mostly because I don't have an arm and a leg to donate. I actually need all of my uh, limbs to, to graduate from law school, I think. So, and I don't have a hookup like Scott does where he was able to go to the reputation tour. Um, I, um, I was excited to watch this. I mean, I, I have appreciated now that she, she didn't do this for the red tour, which is kind of disappointing because red is still my favorite one of her albums, <clears throat> but she did it for the 1989 tour. And now she has done it here on Netflix, which is even better. Um, you know, has released the concert film, uh, and the 1989 tour had sort of some behind the scenes stuff, you know, sprinkled throughout, but this is pretty much just a straight up concert. Um, and it's an incredible concert. Um, you know, 
even just watching it from home, uh, it's pretty immersive. Like, yeah, so I gave it five stars on Letterboxd, really just that was my personal enjoyment level of, of it. I think from a filmmaking standpoint, there's so many jump cuts um, that it, it does get a little distracting. Are you really going to film review this? I can't, I can't even believe what you're doing. I'm just saying like, I'm tempering my five-star review since you were so flippant about it. Um, But uh, I think that if we're going to, if we're talking about a filmmaking standpoint, there are a lot of jump cuts, but in terms of the, you know, the quality of not just Taylor Swift's performance, which I think is actually, you know, you can have qualms with her vocal abilities. I think those are perfectly fair to have. She hasn't always been the greatest live singer in the past, but some of you know some of her performances here are you know some of the best that I've heard her vocally, um, which is you know even more surprising considering that this was filmed on the very last night of the Reputation tour. So you know after she'd been on this you know year long grind throughout the world, and she still sounds great. And you know the performance, the whole spectacle of the whole thing, uh, you know, it's just awesome. Like the dancers and the you know the special effects and everything. Like it is a proper stadium concert show. Um, you know, the songs are great. I really appreciated how she played some of her old songs. I mean, All Too Well, which is the greatest Taylor Swift song. And I think which a lot of people have come to really appreciate in recent years. And she, you know, she even has a little uh, speech about how the song has become something different um, in recent years before she plays it, which I, I appreciated. And, you know, in general, these moments where she sort of steps back from the music uh, and talks to the crowd and is a little more introspective, I think, are some of the best moments uh, because, you know, they, they humanize a person who is like one of the biggest pop stars in the world uh, and that people can often forget is actually a human being like the rest of us. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of the, uh, the gossip and the rumors, you know, start uh, around her. Uh, but I think these, these moments are, are really good for, you know, that purpose of humanizing her. And I think in general, the whole the way that the whole thing is staged and that the way that the whole reputation album was staged, um, you know, to sort of respond to those criticizing to her does so in a really powerful way. But also, you know, she, she claps back at them in a powerful way, but also ultimately, you know, she she encourages everyone to just, you know, shake it off, just like uh, the song from 1989 says. So I think leaves with a positive message as well. So, yeah, really, really, really enjoyed. Um, this concert film, I think if you're even a casual fan of Taylor Swift, uh, it's worth checking out. Even if you didn't like the Reputation album as much, I think her performance adds a lot to those Reputation songs. And I think that, you know, we see a lot of uh, the old songs sprinkled in there as well. Uh, so, yeah, go T-Swift. Did Mr. Joe Alwyn make an or sorry, Mr. Taylor Swift make an appearance? He did not. I guess he was too busy, uh, you know, lying in bed with Margot Robbie. Oof. I wonder how Taylor feels about that. I don't know. Maybe you should tweet at her and ask her. We can get her on the podcast. All right. I won't make you put a score on it because it, it doesn't really make much sense. <laughs> <laughs> and you said you wanted to temper my five-star flippant comment. Oh, well, I'm whatever. Not, I, would, uh, I don't think. <laughs> anyway, we'll just move on to some news now to wrap up You know this, this episode, this first episode of the new year. There have been... I, you know, at first when I started jotting things down for the news, I was like, oh, it's the new year. Not that much has happened in the last like week and a half. But then I started digging into some stories, and turns out things have happened in the last week and a half, Scott. Um, first off, apparently, I didn't realize this. I'd not been paying enough attention. Kevin Hart may now return as Oscars host, which is just, uh, that's wild to me. I don't know, Scott. Have you been tracking this at all? Not totally, but I think, you know, I think it basically just comes because 
they're panicking, like, right? Like we're getting really close to the date of the Oscars and we still don't have a host and nobody is really stepping forward and saying they're going to do it. So maybe, you know, the fact that they had someone who was committed to do it before, you know, everything that came out came out uh, is causing them to say, hey, you know, like, here's our fail safe. Like if we can't find anyone else, like, let's just go back to, to Kevin Hart. I'm trying to picture what the response is going to be if that ends up happening i'm not 100 sure it'll be very strange uh don't know if i have anything else to add to that because it'll it'll just be an interesting an interesting moment if the oscars goes back to to kevin hart and then see him you know perform his stand-up on stage at the beginning of the oscars after everything that that kind of came up around his uh homophobic um comments from several years back all right you know in other kevin hart tangential news Danny DeVito and Aquafina are joining the cast of Jumanji 3 that's supposed to come out Christmas time this year, although I've heard rumors that it might get pushed just because of how late the filming is, is going to start relative to the release date. But Danny DeVito, Aquafina, does, does this make you feel anything for Jumanji 3? Sure. I mean, these are two good comedic presences. I mean, you know, I have loved them both um, in in movies. Obviously, Danny DeVito in some older movies where as Aquafina, you know, she was in two movies last year. And I really enjoyed her in both of those movies, um, Ocean's 8 and Crazy Rich Asians. Um, so, you know, yeah, this makes me a little more intrigued by it than I normally would be because I'm not a Kevin Hart fan. Uh, and I, you know, haven't seen the other Jumanji films. But, you know, if push comes to shove, maybe I'll uh, I'll go see it. I don't know if push is going to come to shove on this one because if it does come out when it's supposed to, it's right in the middle of Star Wars Episode Nine. So, yeah, well, sorry, that's going to take forever. We should see. <laughs> All right, Aquaman, top of the box office three weeks in a row, closing in on one billion, Scott. What do you think about this? I think it's, I mean, I think it's surprising, right? Like, I think so many people were not high on the DCEU after how much it had failed. And Aquaman certainly didn't seem like the way to, you know, bring it back to where they want it to be just because of historically how the character has been construed. And we talked about this when we reviewed the movie. But yeah, I mean, I guess props to them, but I, I mean, I didn't enjoy the movie. I don't really want this version of the DC universe to continue. Uh, so I hope that despite the fact that this movie has done well, um, DC doesn't uh, read too much into that. Yeah, so I think Box Office Mojo has the, has Aquaman for this weekend at $941 million. So, I mean, that seems pretty likely given it's still top of the box office. Like nothing's coming out next weekend that's going to unseat it. So I think it'll probably get there. It'll probably get there. Of course, you know, 70 plus percent of this is coming from overseas. So, I mean, if I told you right now that Venom made 856 million at the, glo- at the global box office, I mean, that would also floor you. But 75% of it came from overseas. So I think it's just something to think about. I think that people are going, I mean, to, in response to your comment, this maybe isn't the direction in terms of script and narrative development that you'll want the DC to go in. But I think I hate to draw this comparison. So please forgive me, but similar to maybe why people went over and over and saw avatar, you know, all the, all those years ago, I think that people might be going to see this film one, cause it's the holidays and it's in, you know, it's a family. It, it, this is a family film ultimately, right? Like anyone can go see this movie. Yeah. And two, the it, it is groundbreaking and it's on the, the amount of time it's shot is quote unquote like underwater right so like the visual effects involved with that are groundbreaking we didn't really highlight that probably enough in our review of it 
But I think a lot of people are going out to see that, right? And that is something new and it is good. Even though me personally, I think you, you could argue that stuff that happens outside the water might be better ultimately in, just in terms of pure film quality. But the visual effects involved with shooting so much of it, again, quote unquote, underwater, uh, ultimately is the groundbreaking part of this movie. So I, I don't know if that is what's driving this up, but clearly this resonated with the global box office, particularly China, uh, really, really well. Uh, all right, so a couple more news items, and then, and then we'll wrap things up. Letitia Wright and Lakeith Stanfield nominated for BAFTA's Rising Star Award. Scott, do you think these are worthy candidates of that? Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I loved Letitia Wright and Black Panther, and <clears throat> Lakeith Stanfield, although I don't, I'm not sure that I saw him in any movies this year. Um, obviously, he was great in Get Out, and going back a few years, I loved him the most in the movie Short Term 12 from back in 2013, I believe. Um, where, you know, he played one of the kids in uh, Brie Larson and John Gallagher's um, home that they they run. Um, and I thought he he had a, a great performance that really showed a lot of promise back then when he was a lot younger. So, yeah, good to see both of them recognized. Um, you know, maybe there would have been one or two more names to throw in there, but... Uh, oh, there are, there are other names. Sorry, that was just two people who got nominated. Oh, okay. Well, cool. I mean, that's great. I, I You know, I'm, again, fans of both of their work. Yeah, this year for the for our listeners who maybe don't know, he was in "Sorry to Bother You," which is I think is probably what's getting him yeah. the the Rising Star nomination. But as well as "The Girl in the Spider's Web," he played a supporting role in that film. And then "Come Sunday," which I haven't actually heard of. Yeah, uh, he was in this year. And then, but he's going to be in "Knives Out" later this year, Scott, which hey. gets you excited. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's playing a police detective in that movie, so that'll be fun. That'll be fun. All right, final thing: "Bird Box," Scott, a movie that I don't think either of us have seen yet. No. I don't know if we will. But it's been viewed, according to Netflix, by 45 million people in the first week. So that was the week of Christmas. 45 million, Scott. That's a lot of people. And that, and so to give a little color around this, that means, okay, to, to get qualified as a view, you have to have viewed 70% of the movie. So it's not people who just click in and then click out. And each account, it counts as one view. So not even, this doesn't count if like three people, like a family watched it together, right? on one account it's only it still only counts as one person so that that's pretty that's pretty good in my mind yeah i think like social media is driving a lot of this because we've seen like the you know the bird box challenge has become a meme now of people trying to do stupid stuff while blindfolded um <clears throat> doesn't make me want to see the movie personally anymore and also you know of course it stars someone who i have a uh, a torrid relationship with uh, Sandra Bullock. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Bird Box Challenge has become so much of a thing that Netflix released a statement about you should not do this at home. Because well, yeah, I mean, the fact that they have to release a statement is kind of sad. Maybe Adam McKay is right about us millennials. I think this is those pesky uh, uh, Gen Zers who are doing this. But um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. If I watch this movie, if I do, it will probably be at some point down the line. I think there's just a lot more on my plate at the moment that I'm more intrigued by. Although, you know, again, shout out to Netflix for, you know, hitting it out of the park with their original programming in terms of, you know, attracting people to to see uh, move, uh, this movie, which they might not go see in theaters. It makes me hope that, like, as many people are, are watching Roma uh, as, you know probably they probably aren't uh, you know yeah as, Scott, as i can are. assure you that people are not watching roma like they're watching but Box. more people are seeing it because it is so easily accessible than you know they would if they had to go to the theater to watch it i mean there's no doubt about that even if it isn't putting up the type of numbers that bird box is 
Totally agree, because right, like this movie, there's no way this movie would open the week of Christmas with $450 million. No, heck no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I don't even know if Avengers does that. Um, I'd have to go look at its, its opening weekend, but it was probably only a little bit higher than that, even if it got that high. Yeah. Anyway, all right, Scott. I, I, you know, we mentioned earlier that we might talk a little bit about Carmen San Diego, but I think we went ahead and hyped it up enough there. That's coming out in about a week and a half, uh, January eighteenth, maybe, is when it's coming out. Uh, we're gonna, we're excited to check that out. We were kind of uh, talking about off air before the show started how just how good the the trailer that Netflix dropped uh, this weekend yeah. was. It looks great. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I had some questions about what this show was going to be just because Carmen San Diego has showed up and. You know, a bunch of different iterations over the years, including a, a game show like when we were kids. But uh, yeah, this definitely looks like an intriguing take on it. So I, w- I will definitely be checking it out when it drops here soon on Netflix. Yeah, I'm here for it. Scott's here for it. So hopefully you'll be here for it as well. And then maybe we'll we'll briefly talk about it a couple episodes down the line. All right. I think that should just about do it for episode 28 of Some Like It. Scott, Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today on our first main episode of 2019? Yeah, I would just say if you haven't had a chance to listen to all of the uh, you know best of 2018 episode that we did last weekend, no, it's a long episode, so you might not have had a chance to get through all of it yet. Go back and you know take take whatever time you need to to get through it because I think uh, you know it was I was we were really happy with how the episode turned out. We were really happy to have the guys from Purely Nostalgia uh, join us, and it really was the culmination of all of our our work for last year. So. Uh, we would really appreciate if you uh, if you listen to it, uh, you know, on your own time, of course. Yeah, uh, I, I'd echo that very strongly. It was truly a great episode. A lot of people who I know uh, who talked to me about the podcast who have listened to it really said it was a great episode, really enjoyed it. It's definitely a little bit more uh, banter heavy, lighthearted episode for those of you who who might think that that makes the you know, more more approachable. Right. And we understand the podcast is long. We're boring yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, the podcast is long. It's I mean, it's it's almost hitting three hours because we have so many movies that we do go through and, and so much kind of tangents we go down from d- different stories that we tell, et cetera, of our movie experiences of those particular movies. But, you know, listen to it in chunks, you know, that it, uh, really it's it's worth it. Just work your way through it. Come back to it. Like Scott said, if you haven't had the chance to listen to it all, because it's a, it's a really great time. It was so fun to record. And the fact that we're getting such positive feedback on the episode itself for those who have listened to it is obviously makes us feel really good. So please go check that out. Okay, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? I am at Scarvy Dent. Awesome. And I can be found at tw- over on Twitter at at S Shelton two zero one three. You can also find our podcast on Twitter and we'd love it. If you followed us over there at at media plug pods, we'd love it even more. If you checked out our pa- podcast, Patreon page at www dot patreon.com slash media plug pods there are a bunch of different reward tiers over there depending on how much you're willing to pledge to the podcast and we'd appreciate it so much even if you only contributed at the one dollar level again that's www.patreon.com slash media plug pods and you can check it out for yourself pick a pick the tier that's right for you etc if you choose not to support us over on patreon however that's totally fine you can still find us on apple podcasts and another change for 2019 here on Podbean. That's right, Podbean at www.podbean.com slash pods or on the Podbean app, where we'd also appreciate it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all those things so we can continue to reach a broader audience in 2019, our year two of the podcast. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. Again, I mentioned this at the start of the show, plenty more changes to come uh, over the next couple months. We have one chain, change that's kind of in the pipeline here that we think is really going to change the way people consume the show, uh, which is really exciting for us. Um, and, and we think that it's, it's going to really help it reach a, a broader audience 
here make it you know uh more more approachable for people so we're hoping that we're getting really excited about that and we're, we're definitely looking forward to sharing more details about that in the next month or so and we're kind of targeting march you know the beginning of march for for our uh rollout of that change all right i've said enough we really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. With the new year comes a lot of really exciting things, including two more episodes for you to expect uh, in the in the next week, week and a half. Uh, first, we're, we're kind of calling our anniversary episode of our podcast, where we'll be recapping this year's Golden Globes, which uh, is, of course, where we all started last year. And then part two of our 2018 in review series will be coming up, where we'll be reviewing season five of the movie Trivia Schmodown and previewing what might be to come in season six. So two things to get excited about. And then, of course, we'll be back in two weeks' time with another uh, episode of the podcast where we'll be reviewing two more movies. Uh, we'll give more details on what movies we'll, we'll be uh, talking about on that show on the next episode with the Golden Globes. But for now, that's all from us. We hope you'll join us again for both of those episodes in the very near future. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful day. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelson. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.